I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. Good evening, true crimers. Hey, everyone. This is take two. Yeah. <laughs> We're having technical glitches now. It's just, this one just doesn't want to come out, I don't think. No. It wants to, everything just has to go wrong. So you got any goss this week? Any news? No, not really. I what? mean, I could ask if anyone knows what the good fish names are because I bought two fish like weeks and weeks ago and they really still don't have names. There you go, guys. So if anyone has two good names for little goldfish, send them my way. There you go. I did hear there was some um an update on William Tyrrell. Someone. Uh, I read it. Yeah. They said they've got a new like suspect in mind. Like they're going a different way, but that didn't elaborate. Oh really? Yeah. Very interesting. So if we hear anything on that, we'll update you on that. Mm. And then we had a little boy go missing. A little three-year-old boy went missing last week. But he has turned up safe and sound, which is pretty amazing. Mm. After four days out and about. Hmm. Well, I don't have any goss, except some of my work colleagues found out that I have a <laughs> podcast the other day, and uh, some of them are going to have a listen. So, hey to the team. <laughs> oh, good. This is Kimberly and I, and our stupidness at its best. There mm. you go. Anyways, I'm going to be doing a horrible story today. Mm. I know. I kept asking you what it was and then I kept forgetting and then asking you again mm. and then forgetting again. So. Yeah, me too, and I can never remember his name. <laughs> I could remember bits of his name but not his whole name. Mm. But he's a horrible little twat of a man. <laughs> Noted. Noted. All right. His name's Keith Hunter Jesperson. He's also known as a happy face killer. But when you look up this chap, (laughs) he has the grumpiest face that you ever laid eyes on. Okay. But, like, if you keep looking, you'll find happier ones, but grumpy face. Yeah. All right. This one comes with a serious trigger warning. He's a monster to both women and animals. Oh. So feel free to miss this one out if you don't want to hear what a filthy pig is. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Except you. No. You need to be here to be subjected to this. Okay. All right. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on the 6th of April in 1955. His parents were Les and Gladys Jesperson. He was born in this one. I don't mean to pay out where you live, but I love it. It's hilarious. In <laughs> Chili Whack. Interesting name. Don't you find that hilarious? Not even laughing. All right, Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, That was like the highlight of my whole story, and you didn't even break into a smile. Mm. Oh. And he was a middle child of two brothers and two sisters. Keith's father was a domineering alcoholic, and Keith also claimed that his paternal grandfather was a violent man. Started off well. Started off well. Yep, Mm. as they usually do. Les Jesperson denied being an abusive parent, as they usually do. <laughs> I was going to say, no one usually goes, yeah, that, I, that was mine. You know, I did that. However, while investigating for his book, 
on Jesperson, author Jack Olson was able to confirm much of the claimed abuse with the other family members. Mm-hmm. So Dad was an abusive pig. Yeah. Treated like an outcast by his own family and teased by other children for his large size at a young age. That is so sad, the damage it does to kids, hey? Mm-hmm. Jesperson was a lonely child who showed a propensity for torturing and killing animals in his younger years. Okay, that, no, like, let's not do that. Let's not. <laughs> Jesperson was given less attention than his siblings and treated differently by the rest of his family. Oh, well, that's a little bit heartbreaking. Like, I want to feel bad for him, but he's abusing animals, so I can't. But I, I, I can see why he's messed up. But you'll see partly why he abuses animals too, like... Mm-hmm. I think this kid just wants any attention he can get. It's but so sad. Do what I do. Just get animals and love them. Don't well, he could have done that. They would have given him attention. Like, I walk in and I get love off my little kitties and they want hugs and Luna just wants hugs. And my have... horse, okay, he just wants food. But my, my he also kind of loves <laughs> mostly food. <laughs> they but all just want food. You could go down that road. He could have gone down that road, but he didn't. After moving to Washington, Jesperson had trouble fitting in and making friends because of his large size. That is so unfair. Like, Kim and I are a little bit on the small end of the scale. So nobody's actually ever made fun of us for being too big. Uh Have been teased for being so short quite a few times, though. Yeah. Poor little big chap. Poor big chap. His brothers didn't help him. Instead, they nicknamed him Igor or Ig, a name that stuck with him throughout his school years. (laughs) This poor guy. He didn't have much of a chance, did he? Although that is a very sibling thing to do. It is very sibling, isn't it? I mean, I probably have done worse. (laughs) Guarantee you've done worse. You've ended dreadful sisters. (laughs) If the, you don't nearly kill each other, then have you been a sibling? Yeah. <laughs> I got shot in the leg with a spear gun one time by my brother because mm. I wouldn't get off the skateboard. I haven't shot any of my sisters. Yet. Push your sister through a glass plate window. Okay, I was too little to remember that, so mm. doesn't count. Anyway, <laughs> because of this, he was a shy child, content to play by himself much of the time. Aww. Why is that all? Well, it's not all. You you were like that. You were always by yourself. That's like my childhood. It's just sad. When I wasn't torturing the girls. (laughs) (laughs) He would often get into trouble for behaving badly, sometimes violently, and he would be severely punished by his father. This included beatings, sometimes with a belt in front of the others, and in one case he received an electric shock from his father. What? No. I know, right? Like, I was like, oh, the belt's probably a bit much, and then like, a shock is definitely taking it way too far. The belt was a thing in my day. You copped the belt if you was naughty. Makes you wonder what his father was capable of. At a very early age, as young as five, Jesperson would capture and torture animals at the age of five. That is horrifying. Like, how do you already have that okay. intensity? When I was five... Remember we found that tiny little bird in the backyard after it rained and we literally put it in a shoebox until it could fly. Yeah. Like, that's what you do. You don't torture animals. That's what you're supposed to do. 
this oh. is really quite sick. So if if you're an animal lover and can't be hearing the nasties, put your fingers in your ears just for a few minutes. Can I? No. He enjoyed watching animals kill each other as oh well God. as the feeling he got from taking their lives. Okay. Oh, was it still five? Are we? Like, it started at five. Oh, my God. This continued as he got older. He would capture birds. Funny you said the bird thing, hey? And stray oh, cats and like dogs <laughs> around the trailer park where he lived with his family, severely beating the animals and then strangling them to death. Oh, my God. Mm. Okay. He's a nasty little chap. Yeah. In the years following, Jesperson said he often thought about what it would be like to do the same to a human. Yeah, no. No. Mm. And that desire manifested itself in two attempted murders. The first happened when Jesperson was around the age of 10. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so not the usual, like, 20 to 30 range. And this guy's an early starter. Terrifying. He was friends with a boy named Martin, and the two would often get into trouble together. Jesperson claimed he was punished many times for things Martin had done and blamed on Jesperson. Of course, that would annoy the guy, wouldn't it? Mm. This led Jesperson to attack Martin, violently beating him until his father pulled him away. He later claimed his intention was to kill the boy. Wow. Mm. You don't want to get on this guy's bad side. No. Approximately one year later, Jesperson was swimming in a lake with another boy who held him underwater until he blacked out. Sometime later at a public pool, Jesperson attempted to drown the boy by holding his head under the water until a lifeguard pulled him away. Jesperson reported that he was raped at the age of 14 and he graduated from high school in 1973 but did not attend college because his father didn't believe he could do it. Oh. So he was treated like like a great big dumbo. Yeah. Pretty sad, really. Like, don't even bother going trying because, like, I don't think you can. You're too dumb. Like, what? You're too big and dumb. That's horrible. He is horrible. Although he wasn't successful with girls in high school, having never even attended a school dance or his prom, sad, he did enter into a relationship after high school. In 1975, when Jesperson was 20, he married Rose Huck. And the couple had three children, two daughters and one son. Jesperson worked as a truck driver to support the family. And several years later, Huck began to suspect Jesperson was having affairs uh-huh. when strange women would call the house. Mm. Their marriage started to crumble. Yeah, that'll happen. I think we're going to have a trigger. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the final straw came for Huck while she and her husband were on a road trip. This guy, I tell you what, this is her talking. We took a little walk and there was a bunch of young men and he grabbed me and threw me in their arms and he said, here, you're going to have her, and walked away. So after 14 years, when Jesperson was on the road, Huck packed up her and her children's belongings and drove 200 miles away to live with her parents in Spokane, Washington. I mean, good on you, love. Good on you, love. I'd be getting out of there too. The oldest child, Melissa, was 10 years old. Jesperson continued to spend time with his children when he was in town and the couple divorced in 1990. I think I got married in 1990. At the age of 35, standing 6 foot 7 and a half inches, 
and weighing approximately 240 pounds, Jesperson began working toward the goal of being a Rook Canadian Mounted Policeman. But an injury suffered while training ended this dream. He then sought work again as an interstate truck driver after relocating to Cheney, Washington. Jesperson soon realised this job afforded him the opportunity to kill without being suspected. Lovely. His first known victim was Tanya Bennett on the 23rd of January 1990. So they got divorced in 1990 and he's already done his first kill by the 23rd of January. Near Portland, Oregon, United States. He introduced himself to Bennett at a bar and invited her to the house he was renting. He bought a home with the idea of having sex with her, and when Bennett refused, he proceeded to strike and beat her. Worried that she would report this to the police, he then put his fist in her mouth and killed her. Oh. Okay. He established an alibi by going back out for some drinks being sure to converse with others before returning to retrieve Bennett's body and belongings to dispose of them. He was back on the road the next day, and the body was found a few days later, but there were three suspects and 666 leads. Oh, wow. That's a lot, isn't it? Mm. Pretty incredible. It was two and a half years after his first kill when Jesperson killed again. Mm. On the 30th of August, it is a long time, isn't it? On the 30th of August, 1992. Oh, 30th of August. Somebody's birthday. Except two years before I was born. Mm, There you go. The the currently unidentified body of a woman he raped and strangled was found near Blythe, California. He says that Jane Doe's name was Claudia. A month later in Turlock, California, the body of Cynthia Lynn Rose was discovered. He claimed she was a sex worker who entered his truck at a truck stop while he slept. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. His fourth victim was another sex worker, Laurie Ann Pentland of Salem, Oregon. Her body was found in November of that year. According to Jesperson, she attempted to double the fee she charged for sex. According to Jesperson, she attempted to double the fee she charged for the sex he had been engaged in with her. She threatened to call the police, so he strangled her. Oh. I don't believe that either. Why would she mm. double it, then call the police? Yeah, I don't know. His stories are a little bit not true. I was going to say, they're not likely to call the police. Anyway. Yeah. 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 It was more than six months before his next victim was found in June 1993, another unidentified woman, a street person in Santanella, California who he claimed was named Carla or Cindy. Police originally considered her death a drug overdose. More than, one, more than one year later, in September 1994, another Jane Doe was found in Crestview, Florida. Jesperson claims her name was Suzanne. Jesperson was arrested on the 30th of March 1995 for the murder of Julie Winningham. How many people is he mur- women is he murdering? He's a murderer. That's what he does. Oh, he used to stop. He had been questioned by police a week before, but they had no grounds to arrest him after he refused to talk. I love that. <laughs> what? You don't want to talk. Oh, okay, bye. See ya. <laughs> what? In the days following, Jesperson decided that he was certainly going to be arrested, and after two suicide attempts, 
He turned himself in, hoping it would result in leniency during his sentencing. Oh, you've just killed all these ladies. Let's be lenient, shall we? While in custody, Jesperson began revealing details of his killings and making claims of many others, most of which he recanted later. Also, a few days before his arrest, he wrote a letter to his brother. In it, he confessed to having killed eight people over the course of five years. This led police agencies in several states across the country to reopen old cases, many of which were found to be possible victims of Jesperson. Mm. Although Jesperson at one point claimed to have had as many as 185 victims, only eight women killed in California, Florida, Nebraska, Oregon, Washington and Wyoming have been confirmed. Moved around a bit. Mm. He's serving three consecutive life sentences at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. In September 2009, he was indicted for murder in Riverside County, California, and was extradited to California to face the charges in December. Jesperson was convicted of this murder and received a fourth life sentence in January 2010. There was Laverne Pavlinak. Early in the investigation of Tonya Bennett's murder, Laverne Pavlinak read the news reports surrounding Tonya's death and saw it as an opportunity to force an end to her long-term abusive relationship that she'd been in with her living boyfriend, Don Sosnowski. She set up a meeting with the investigating detectives and gave a false confession. Using the details she had written reports to give a detailed story of how Sosnowski forced her to help him rape, murder and dispose of Bennett's body. Mm-hmm. Pavlinak and Sosnowski were both arrested on the 5th of March 1990 and were both convicted of the murder on the 8th of February 1991. To avoid the possibility of facing the death penalty, Sosnowski pleaded guilty. Oh, wow. Crazy, hey? He was sentenced to life in prison while Pavlinak was sentenced to less than, no less than 10 years. So they've admitted to his first crime mm-hmm. and got himself into serious trouble, the idiots. Oh, my God. Much more than she had originally anticipated. She soon admitted to making it all up, but her claims were ignored. <gasps> On the 7th of January 1996, more than five years after their conviction, the happy face killer was upset as all the attention was going to Pavlinak and Sosnowski. Jesperson wrote a confession on the bathroom wall of a truck stop and signed it with a smiley face. When that did not create the attention he desired, he wrote letters to the media outlets and police departments confessing to his murders, starting with a six-page letter to the Oregonian in which he revealed the details of his killings. He signed each letter with a smiley face. Oh, that's horrifying. Mm. This led Phil Stanford, the journalist working for the story for the Oregonian, to dub Jesperson the happy face killer. Jesperson wrote many letters, including these and other excerpts taken from his letters. These are all his words now. Seems like my luck has run out. I'll never be able to enjoy life on the outside again. I got into a bad situation and I got caught up with emotion. I killed a woman in my truck during an argument. With all the evidence against me, it looks like I truly am a black sheep. The court will appoint me a lawyer and there will be a trial. I am sure they will kill me for this. Hmm. 
I am sorry that I turned out this way. I've been a killer for five years and have killed eight people. Assaulted more, I guess I haven't learned anything. Dad always has worried about me because of what I've gone through in the divorce, finances, etc. I've been taking it out on different people. As I saw it, I was hoping they would catch me. I took 48 sleeping pills last night and I woke up well rested. (laughs) The night before, I took two bottles of pills to no avail. They will arrest me today. Later the same night, after dropping the letters he had written into the mail, Jesperson called Detective Buckner from, I can't say it, somewhere in some Cochise County in Arizona (laughs) and confessed to the murder of Julianne Winningham. According to Jesperson, he confessed to Winningham's murder because he knew that he would be either be sentenced to life in prison or executed, and in either case, he would no longer be in a position where he could kill another woman. Six days later, Rick Buckner flew to Arizona to take Jesperson into his custody and returned him to Washington State, where he would be formally charged with Winningham's murder. According to what Jesperson would later write, Buckner reportedly told him, Wesley Allen Dodd once wore those same cuffs. Jesperson said in his writings that he thought to himself, after Buckner's reported remarks, if he only knew what was in them now, he would faint. (laughs) (laughs) When he arrived in Washington, Jesperson called his brother and instructed him to destroy the letter he had sent him. However, on the advice of a lawyer and Jesperson's father, his brother decided to turn the letter over to the police because they felt it was unlawful to hold on to or destroy the evidence. Mm. That was pretty good. Shortly after it was turned over to the police, the letter was published by a number of newspapers. Meanwhile, Buckner began transmitting information about Jesperson to law enforcement agencies around the nation. He provided information about Jesperson's confession and the letter he'd written to his brother and inquired whether there were any jurisdictions that had any unsolved homicides that might fit into Jesperson's travel itineraries. Within days, Buckner's office received 16 responses from law enforcement agencies as far away as New York and Florida, and the process of examining unsolved homicides in a number of states had begun. That'd be a big job. Huge, hey? Hmm. In addition to Jesperson's routes of travel, investigators took another look at the physical evidence that had been collected from a number of crime scenes involving murdered women, including bodily fluids for DNA analysis and for possible matches to Jesperson. Focusing on female homicide victims found along major roadways and near truck stops. Authorities in Oregon, Nevada and Utah were among the first to begin re-examining open cases. Of particular interest to investigators in Oregon was an unsolved case involving a woman who disappeared from the vicinity of a truck stop in the Wilsonville area in the northern part of the state in August 1994 and whose body was eventually found along the highway near Medford in southern Oregon in March 1995, shortly after Jesperson's arrest. Authorities in Utah and the Great Basin area of northeastern Nevada also re-examined several unsolved homicides involving women to see if Jesperson somehow fit into the scheme of things. 
Although their gut instinct told them Jesperson probably was the killer in a number of the cases that they re-examined, they lacked su- sufficient evidence to bring any charges against him. Another cruelty to animals trigger warning. This is his words again. Go on. Bashing gophers and slaughtering cats and dogs. Buckner learned that by the time Keith Jesperson was six, he'd gotten his first taste of killing living things by bashing in the heads of gophers while still in British Columbia. By the time he was 20, while living with his parents in the Washington State Trailer Park, Keith got his first taste of killing larger animals when he began dragging stray dogs and cats into the field near the park where he would beat them to death with a shovel, strangle them with his bare hands and shoot them with his BB gun. He discovered that he enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. So horrible. I was Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesperson bragged to a reporter. It was like I was playing war. When I looked at those dogs, they would squat and pee. They'd be so scared that they would tremble. Like, if you saw that, you'd just pick it up and hug it, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. What a normal person would do. By his own admission, Jesperson enjoyed the fear he instilled in these animals and took great pleasure in watching and feeling the life, literally, drain out of the animals until they succumb to death. You come to the point where killing something is nothing, Jesperson said. It's the same feeling, he said, whether he was strangling a human being or an animal. That's horrifying. It is horrifying. You've already felt the pressure on the throat of them trying to grab air. You're actually squeezing the life out of these animals and there isn't much difference. They're going to fight for their lives just as much as a human being will. Nowadays, it's no secret that those who've shown a propensity towards animal violence and abuse during their younger years sometimes move on to more violent crimes later on in life that are directed at human beings. It's in the crime journals. All of the major law enforcement agencies, Jesperson once wrote from his prison cell at Oregon State Penitentiary, where he eventually became a permanent resident, Abusive behaviour towards animals is one of the symptoms on the road to being a murderer, he wrote. He wrote that it was in his early childhood that his aggression towards animals began and explained that his father once witnessed him throw a cat against the pavement and finish it off by strangling it to death. Jesperson wrote that his father had appeared proud of how he had dealt with the cat and bragged to others how Keith had gotten rid of the stray cats and dogs in the mobile park home where he lived. All this did was spawn me on and urge me to kill again, said Jesperson. Oh, my God. So. Well, he wants approval like he, from his dad. He just wanted attention and approval, and that's what he got. Mm. And it just spurred him on. I began to think of what it would be like to, to kill a human being. The thought stayed with me for years, until one night it happened. I killed a woman by beating her almost to death and finished her off by strangulation, he said, explaining how he killed Ponya Bennett. No longer did I search for animals to mistreat. I now looked for people to kill, and I did. I killed over and over until I was caught. Now I'm paying for it with the rest of my life behind bars. We should stop the cruelty to anything before it develops into a bigger problem like me. Jesperson was clearly making an attempt to convince the public to buy into the idea that a compassionate side of him existed, where, of course, none did. 
During his many letter-writing campaigns to reporters and writers with, with websites, Jesperson ran the gamut of trying to present different sides of his personality. <laughs> in one letter, he might write about his compassionate side, and then the other, he would refer to the roadside victims as piles of garbage. An attempt to place doubt in the public and law enforcement's eyes that he was a killer but had instead merely only stumbled onto someone else's garbage only to have a murder unfairly pinned on him after reporting the roadside bodies. In other letters, he would write about offering a self... This is horrible. Hmm. He would write about offering a self-start serial killer kit. Oh, it's also funny, but it's horrible. Such as the following, an obvious attempt at sick humour and sarcasm. This is the offer... You all have been dying for. <laughs> that alone's funny. Terrible. So I'll start a serial killer kit. Now you can be the only serial killer on your block. <laughs> Learn from a professional serial killer. Oh, my God. Get rid of that unwanted family member. Get that job you've always wanted by opening a slot. <laughs> Everyone will be dying to meet you. But this bit's really horrible. You get a full-life Julie Winningham look-alike doll with an extra tough spring-back neck, so you'll soon have the strength to squeeze the shit out of anyone. Oh, lovely. I enjoy screwing with the press and the prosecutors through the press, Jesperson once told a reporter. I do what has to be done to get results. Often, as will be seen, the results he often looked for was avoiding receiving the death sentence. Mm. The murder of Angela Sabreeze. While Jesperson sat in the Clark County Jail for the murder of Julie Winningham, he began talking to his attorney, Thomas Phelan, about other crimes that he'd committed. The conversation began when Phelan asked Jesperson about the letter he'd sent to his brother, which had been turned over to the police. In an adrenaline-scared rush, Jesperson began telling his innermost secrets to the attorney when he realised that he would be labelled a serial killer after the police linked him to the additional killings. Mm. So he just wanted the serial, mm. the serial name. One of those cases involved the murder of a 21-year-old, Angela Sabreeze, against legal advice to keep his mouth shut. Narcissism. Mm. Jesperson decided to tell his account of Angela's murder to other inmates who in turn reported what he'd said to authorities. Clark County investigators relayed the information to their counterparts in Wyoming and Nebraska. Later, Jesperson would also talk to investigators about Angela's killing as well as others and would detail his accounts in his letter-writing campaign and internet postings made possible through the help of people willing to post his writings on their website. According to Jesperson's account, he picked up Angela Sabreeze near Spokane, Washington, in January 1995, and he agreed to give her a ride to Fort Collins, Colorado, to see her father. <laughs> this was sad, and I don't believe he ever had any intention of taking her there. No, probably not. At one point along the way, they stopped so that she could call her dad, who Jesperson would later claim told her he didn't want to see her and to stay away. Afterward, Angela changed her mind about going to Fort Collins and asked Jesperson to take her to Indiana instead to visit a friend. In a rage, I murdered her in Wyoming, Jesperson said. Okay. Jesperson went on to explain that he became enraged when Angela would not let him sleep when they had stopped at a truck stop 
just east of Cheyenne, Wyoming. I believe you. Mm. Sorry. She kept bitching at him to keep driving in bad weather, and he ended up strangling her by placing his fist tightly against her throat. Afterwards, he went back to sleep. When he awoke about three hours later, he drove into Nebraska and pulled off into a rest area where he bound her body with black nylon rope and secured it face down beneath his rib. Oh, this is horrible. He dragged her body along the pavement for about 10 to 12 miles until oh, it became loose. my God. Pretty horrible. He then untied her body and threw it into a ditch situated about 75 feet off Interstate 80, some 250 miles east of the truck stop where he'd killed her. Wow. The nylon rope was still attached to her ankles. That's crazy. He's just a pig. Sergeant Terry Bowling of the Laramie County, Wyoming Sheriff's Department, caught the assignment in the jurisdiction since it was believed that Angela had been killed in Wyoming. Bolig learned that Angela had led a transient lifestyle and as such had not been reported missing by family members. It's sad. It is sad, hey? Bolig, however, eventually located her father by examining phone call charges to a credit card believed to have belonged to Jesperson's brother. As spring slowly turned into summer, and summer just as slowly made its way into autumn, Keith Jesperson sat in jail in Washington with little else to do except think about his crimes and make plans on how he might manipulate the system to his benefit. <laughs> and as prosecutors built their case against him for the murder of Julianne Whittingham, authorities from Wyoming confronted him with what little evidence and information they had regarding Angela Sabrees. At one point, they showed him a photo of her in which he identified Angela as the person that he'd picked up and killed. He also told the investigators about a significant detail that would leave little doubt in their minds that he was, for reasons known only to him, being truthful with them regarding Angela. He said that she had a tattoo of the cartoon character Tweety Bird on one of her ankles, in which Tweety was making an obscene gesture. In September 1995, based on specific and accurate information from Jesperson, relayed by Clark County, Washington investigators to their counterparts in Nebraska, a Nebraska Highway Patrolman found Angela's remains lying near the shoulder of Interstate 80, near Gothenburg, a small town of 3,200 residents located near the South Platte River, where it had been laying in the tall grass for several months probably since early January. Badly decomposed, most of her skin had decayed and investigators were able to identify her only after examining pelvic x-rays and finding the tattoo of Tweety Bird that was still visible on one of her ankles. One of only a few identifying marks that remained on her body. Meanwhile, investigators in Washington, California and Oregon went to work examining Jesperson's handwriting. Because of the comments that he'd been making to other inmates and due to the letters that he'd written to his brother, the investigators wanted to determine if Jesperson was the same person who had written the letters to the Oregonian columnist claiming to have killed three women in California and two in Oregon. Using the letter that he wrote to his brother claiming to have killed eight women over a five-year period, the investigators saw similarities not only in the handwriting, but in the crimes themselves. 
Regarding one of the California victims, the Happy Face Killer wrote that he'd used duct tape to bind her hands and feet, a fact that was never released to the public. Investigators also found duct tape near her body. Mm-hmm. In a statement he made to police, Jesperson claimed to have taped Julie Winningham's mouth shut with duct tape, but there were discrepancies in the letters as well. In one Happy Face Killer letter, the writer claimed to have quit long-haul truck driving as a, and was now instead employed as a driver. These are his words, or the writer's words. Yeah. Where I am in the public eye and out of harm's way, I got away from what became easy. I do not want to kill again. Yet another similarity in the letter writing between Jesperson and the Happy Face Killer appeared when Jesperson wrote the letters to the Colombian newspaper in Vancouver, Washington, and had it smuggled out of the jail. (laughs) In that letter, he again alluded to a desire to be caught so that he would not kill again and stated, I know what I've done has been wrong and I feel sorry for all the families of my victims. I am in fact the happy face killer. I created that man because I wanted to be stopped, but it's hard just to come out and say it. I've prayed many nights in this cold, dark prison cell for the answer, and God has told me to come clear with it all, tell the truth about everything. I will not be happy until I'm replacing that man, Sosnovsky, in the Oregon State Penitentiary for the crime I did, and he goes free. Most people will say that I'm a monster. I am not a monster. Yes, you are. I was going to say, that's kind of my definition. Yeah, you're a monster. If it's... Just like the movie Jurassic Park, I was created by people. Well, that's probably true too, but you're still a monster. Don't compare yourself to Jurassic Park. <laughs> Jurassic Park is awesome, you're not. Yeah, not awesome. Jesperson's comments about Sosnowski and their obvious relevance to the Tonya Bennett case naturally shocked the investigators. Especially Detectives Carson and Ingram and Prosecutor McIntyre, who were responsible for putting Sosnowski and Pavlinak behind bars. His comments marked the first time that anyone had, had sown any seeds of doubt that the right, su- right suspects had been prosecuted. Naturally, all those involved were inclined to believe that Jesperson was lying mm. and that they had convicted the right people for Bennett's murder. As soon as I feel we have the wrong people in jail, you'll probably catch me going to Salem to get them out. Multnomah County District Attorney Michael Sharunk said of Jesperson's remarks. In the meantime, Jesperson's attorney went to work setting up a plea bargain agreement between the state of Oregon and Jesperson regarding Bennett's murder. Going public. In writing the letter to the Columbian, Jesperson realised he would need the help of public opinion. If he were going to be able to convince the authorities that he'd killed Tonya Bennett. When one looks at Keith Jesperson's case as a whole, it becomes easier to see that his motivation for confessing to Tonya's murder was not so much out of a desire to come clean or that he was being sympathetic or empathetic, but was most likely for self-preservation. Jesperson knew if he was extradited to Wyoming, he would face potential death penalty for the murder of Angelus Breeze. However, if he was able to confess to Tonya Bennett's murder, he would be sentenced to death in Oregon. However, that state 
has had no one sentenced to death since the early 1960s, or they haven't been carried out since the early 1960s. Mm. He knew he could at least postpone any convictions that Wyoming might be able to carry out against him. It was even likely that Oregon would not sentence him to death, but would give him life in prison instead if his attorney was successful in working out a plea bargain. He would later reveal that his reasoning had been that his confession and subsequent sentence in Oregon would make it ultimately more difficult for Wyoming to get his hands on him. The press appeared more than eager to help out as reporters from a number of newspapers contacted Jesperson about the claims he was making. He told them that Laverne Pavlinek and John Savnoski were innocent and had been sent to prison for a crime that he had committed. According to Jesperson, the police did not believe him at first and insisted that they had the right people in jail for Bennett's murder. It wasn't until he insisted that he could lead them to the location of Tonya's purse and Oregon identification card, something that Laverne Pavlinak had been unable to do, that they began to show interest. It wasn't until after Jesperson had led the detectives to those critical pieces of evidence lying behind a bush near the Sandy River that they began to believe him. When taken to the location where Bennett's body was found, he provided them with information about the body and its position, details that no one other than the killer and the cops would know. Adding credence to what Jesperson had provided them, Jesperson told the investigators to review his lawyer's notes that had been compiled in May 1995 before the press or anyone else had any idea that Jesperson might be the happy face killer, who had written intimate details about the case to the Oregonian. Jesperson, through his attorney, indicated that he was willing to plead no contest to the murder of Tonya Bennett. In the meantime, it was agreed that Laverne Pavlinak and Keith Jesperson would undergo polygraph examinations, which would be administered by the FBI. The results of the polygraph test indicated that Pavlinak had been truthful in her denials that she had killed Bennett and that Jesperson was being truthful in his claims of being the killer. The results of the test also showed that Jesperson and Pavlinak did not know each other. Based on the new information, Michael Shrunk filed a motion in Marion County where the Oregon State Penitentiary is located, asking for the immediate release of Pavlinak and Sosnowski. Shrunk told presiding Marion County Circuit Judge Paul Lipscomb that Pavlinak and Savnoski had served more than four years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. He also outlined the evidence that Jesperson had provided. However, Lipscomb refused to immediately release the couple. Instead, the judge said that he would consider an evidentiary hearing after Jesperson entered his plea in which Jesperson could testify on behalf of Pavlinak and Savnoski. It's extraordinary, Shrunk said afterwards. You don't see prosecutors doing this all the time. <laughs> it's the appropriate thing to do under the appropriate circumstances. He emphasised that there were no proprietaries on the part of the judge, jury or lawyers when Pavlinak and Sosnowski were convicted. The evidence they had at the time was ample evidence to convict. There are a lot of dynamics to this case, 
and you would have to have been there to understand, Deputy District Attorney James McIntyre said. McIntyre, who prosecuted the case, said that he did not owe anyone an apology for having prosecuted a case that sent two people, innocent people to prison. What I will say is that based upon the evidence we discovered in interviewing, in interviewing Jesperson, we couldn't have obtained these convictions. Pavlinek's family, meanwhile, remained hopeful that the judge would do the right thing and release Pavlinak and Sosnowski from prison. We're happy but not happy enough, one of Pavlinak's relatives said after Lipscomb's decisions. We need the release order signed before we get real happy. The case should never have gone to trial. If the jury had heard the whole truth, they would never have been convicted. She, Laverne, always read mystery books and murder books. She read in the paper that this girl had been murdered and that the police didn't have a suspect, so she gave them a suspect. In the meantime, while Jesperson waited to enter his plea for murdering Tonya Bennett, and as the state of Wyoming continued building its case for the murder of Angela Sabrese, Jesperson continued his many contacts with the news, media, claiming responsibility for the murders, a number of other women as well. After Bennett, Jesperson said, there was Claudia, a girl wanting a ride to Phoenix, Arizona with me. She tried to extort my wallet from me and died trying. Then there was Cynthia Lynn Rose, a prostitute working the southbound rest area on Highway 99 near Turlock, California. Then Laurie Ann Pentland, a prostitute working the Burns Brother truck stop in Wilsonville, Oregon. Then a Jane Doe prostitute working the Petro truck stop in California. Then a woman I gave a ride to in Florida going to Lake Tahoe, Nevada. She called herself Susanna. Jesperson also claimed that he was responsible for the work murders of the following women. Bobby in Oregon in October 27, 1992. Lynn in Nevada, January 1993. Susan in Oklahoma, January 1993. Linda in Washington, March 1993. Sunny in Arizona, April 1993. Jane Doe in Idaho, April 1993. Jane Doe in California, May 1993. Jane Doe in California, July 1993. Jane Doe in Arizona, September 1993. Carrie in Idaho, November 1993. Karen in Georgia, February 1994. Carol in Nevada, February 1994. Jane Doe in Nebraska, October 1994. Jane Doe in Iowa, February 1995 and Jane Doe in Indiana, February 1995. A few there. Horrible, isn't it? Mm. There were others that he could not name and provide a location for. All in all, he said, he was responsible for at least 160 slayings across the United States. Jesperson told the media that he was admitting to all of these murders because he was bothered by his guilty conscience. However, like Henry Lee Lucas before him, Jesperson, would later recant most of those confessions. So this story here is um, about Jesperson just showing what a liar he is as well, so that we can't necessarily believe everything he's saying. Mm. At one point, according to an account by the Happy Face Killer himself, Jesperson was visited by an investigator from what was left of the Green River Killer Task Force, 
wanting to know if he was responsible for any of the still unsolved killings in their jurisdiction. Since many of Jesperson's victims were known prostitutes and strangulation was his preferred MO, uh, Jesperson naturally looked like a feasible candidate in at least some of the Green River killings. The fact that he was trucking in and out of Seattle and the surrounding areas on an almost daily basis in the early to mid-1980s, hauling flatbeds of scrap metal and steel to steel mills of Seattle and Tacoma, made him look even more viable as a suspect. Jespers, in his own words, claimed that he told the following story to an unnamed investigator from the Green River Task Force. One day, they had me in a room and told me to tell them about Seattle. They have reason to believe that I'm one of the killers that's responsible for some of the Green River murders. They still believe this, but are waiting for more information to flow through my lips on the subject. Thinking for only five minutes, I thought up this story to tell them to throw them off, but it backfired instead. The story involved two sisters. And the police have never mentioned to the press that two sisters had become victims of the Green River Killer. It was about 8pm. As I drove up north, up the Seattle-Tacoma Strip, instead of taking Interstate 5, this roadway is full of hitchhikers and hookers at this time of night. I was eyeing two cute hookers as they talked at a bus stop. Both were good lookers, but I wanted one by herself. About a quarter of the mile up the road, I spotted a bitch walking fast up the sidewalk. Her hips were swinging from side to side, and she had the nicest legs that climbed all the way up to her butt. Her body was slender and firm. She seemed to be in a hurry. As I was approaching her at 35 miles an hour, I thought for just a moment about her, but knew I first had to get the rest of my steel on. Fun will come later. She reached the bus stop before I got there, Jesperson continued, and without looking out for traffic, she stepped right out in front of me. With a car passing me on my left, I could only break and hope for hitting her. I heard the impact of her body, struck my bumper, and felt her tumble under my tyres. I'd managed to stop the truck quickly, and with the emergency flashes going, I stepped out of the truck a little shaken. I'd stopped the truck, and her body was still under my trailer. She was dead. I looked around for witnesses, but there were none, and the traffic was little to none. No one had witnessed the accident. I felt I could get away with it. If I only could get her body away from here. So I dragged her body out from under the trailer, placed her in the cab of the 1964 Kenworth, got in, drove up the North Strip for half a mile. On the right was an open field with tall trees and enough bush to hide behind to dig her a shallow grave. As he continued his tale, Jesperson told of how he grabbed his shovel after throwing the dead woman over his shoulder. He carried her back into the field, tossed her body on the ground and removed all of her jewellery, placing it inside his pocket, he claimed, as he dug her grave. He explained that he heard something or someone coming towards him. Not wishing to be seen, he knelt down and watched. The man like Jesperson was carrying a body, but his was inside a black plastic bag. He placed it on the ground and proceeded to dig a grave nearby as Jesperson watched. Jesperson said he decided to approach the man and startled him as he did so. I was about done when I saw you walking towards me, Jesperson said, he told the man. 
I couldn't help but be amazed that the two of us had to get rid of two bodies at the same time. <laughs> now that I know what you came out here for, I'll let you get back. I'll get back to what I was doing. After they both buried the bodies in the field, said Jesperson, the two of them decided to stop at a restaurant and have a coffee together. I couldn't help but notice that yours and mine looked a lot alike, Jesperson said. He told the man, even though his was in a plastic bag, mind you. Mm. They had the same features, only difference was the necklace. I took off mine. I pulled the jewellery from my pocket and placed it on the table. He picked up the jewellery and started it, started it, and a tear came to his eyes. Jesperson said he asked the man what was wrong. It seemed we have a lot more in common than just burying two girls at the same time, Jesperson said. The man told him, we both have killed identical twins. <laughs> Yours is a sister to mine. Yeah, the, sure. The foregoing story was obviously a fabrication mm-hmm. concocted by idiots' imagination, but it serves as a good example of his ability to lie easily and quickly without giving much advanced thought to the process. According to profiler and serial killer expert Dr. Morris Goodwin, who often works closely with law enforcement investigations to assist the police with his expertise, there were no systems as victims in the Green River case. In fact, Jesperson later proudly proclaimed that he'd made it all up. Interestingly, in his I'm a Liar essay that was published widely on the internet, he also denied most, if not all, of his prior admissions of guilt. The Green River Task Force seemed to quickly lose interest in him after him telling his tale of the two sisters. Yeah. But it remains interesting that he would choose to identify so closely with a case involving so many victims whose death, at least in some cases, closely paralleled those of his own known victims. When taking into consideration the outdoor locations of the Green River crime scenes, the nude bodies, the strangulation as cause of death, prostitutes and transient type as victims, and so forth, when making a comparison to Jesperson's victims and crime scenes. One can only wonder if Jesperson had in reality committed any of the murders attributed to the Green River Killer. So far, however, he's not been charged, nor has he been listed as an official suspect in connection with any of those murders. However, there was another Oregon case involving Jesperson that had to be dealt with in the meantime. The murder of 23-year-old Laurie Ann Pentland. According to the Marion County District Attorney Office, investigators linked Jesperson to Pentland's murder through DNA and other forensic evidence after learning that Jesperson was a happy face killer. Jesperson had written letters as a happy face killer after Pentland's murder, claiming responsibility for her death. He'd said that she was an acquaintance that he contacted via Citizens Brand Radio while in Salem area. In one of the letters he said that he'd had sex with her several times. I felt so much power, he had written as a happy face killer. I then told her she was going to die and slowly strangled her. Jesperson was again sentenced to life in prison in Oregon with a minimum 30-year term before parole eligibility. Following his sentencing in Washington, he was transferred to the Oregon State Penitentiary to begin serving consecutive sentences. If he remains alive to complete his sentence in Oregon, 
He'll be transferred to the Washington State Penitentiary to begin serving his life sentence there. On November 27, 1995, after serving more than four years in prison for a crime they didn't commit, Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnowski were released from prison. Jesperson purportedly cried when he learned of their release. It wasn't known, however, whether his tears were tears of happiness for the couple or tears of regret for having confessed to a murder that he knew he could have gotten away with. More than two years later, a considerable legal wrangling and state of Wyoming finally succeeded in extraditing Jesperson for trial for the murder of Angela Sabreeze. For the next few months, as prosecutors prepared to go to trial, Jesperson taunted the authorities and threatened to force a costly trial by changing his story regarding the jurisdiction in which he had killed Angela. At one point, he said he'd killed her in Wyoming. At another point, he claimed he'd killed her in Nebraska. After going back and forth for some time, surrounding Jesperate's deliberate misleading statements in his attempt to confuse authorities on who had jurisdiction to prosecute him, a deal was worked out. Jesperson agreed to plead guilty to murdering Angela Savarese in Wyoming if Laramie County prosecutors would agree not to seek the death penalty against him. As a result, on June 3, 1998, District Judge Nicholas Calacathus sentenced Jesperson to life in prison and ordered that the sentence run consecutive to the two life sentences in Oregon and the life sentence in Washington, leaving little doubt that he would die in prison. Afterward, he was promptly returned to the Oregon State Penitentiary. It remains to be seen whether any other jurisdictions, such as the state of Florida or California, will prosecute Jesperson for murders that he confessed to in those states. So that's pretty much that. There's a bit about his daughter. Jesperson's daughter still has lots to say about it and has been on lots of talk shows and stuff. Mm. In November 2008, Jesperson's daughter, Melissa G. Moore, appeared on the Dr. Phil show to talk about her father. She also featured on the Oprah Winfrey show on the 17th of September 2009. And there's been so many movies. Mm. Um, Monster in My Family, Happy Face Killer. 2008, Moore published a book titled Shattered Silence, The Untold Story of a Serial Killer's Daughter. Moore lived with her father until her parents' divorce in 1990. Moore noticed her father was different when she was in elementary school. Their house bordered on an apple orchard and her dad killed stray cats and gophers that wandered nearby. One day she watched horrified as he hung stray kittens from the family's clothesline. Oh, my God. She ran to get her mother and when they returned, the kittens lay on the ground dead. Mm. So she was under the age of 10 at that point. Yeah. Poor kid. He had watched and laughed as the kittens clawed each other to escape, then he killed them. She wrote an article about her father for the BBC in November 2014 and in March 2018 she was featured in an episode titled Put on a Happy Face for the true crime series Evil Lives Here. She was also a correspondent for Crime Watch Daily. In September 2018, podcast network How Stuff Works began releasing a show called Happy Face featuring interviews with Melissa about her childhood and her father. In June 2021, 
a trailer appeared on iTunes for a new true crime podcast called Life After Happy Face to be hosted by Melissa Moore and forensic criminologist Dr. Laura Petter. So if you want to know any more, I'll put those the links to those in the show notes. And that is the end of my sordid, horrible, disgusting <laughs> little story. It was rough. It was rough. Oh, monster. Hmm. Got any idea who you're going to do and you're going to have to hurry up and do it because we're late this weekend. We are really sorry about that, but we have got a lot going on. Things are a little bit out of control. So have we got any idea who you are doing? <laughs> I don't know. Don't know. We will get our act together. I don't know how we're going to get it all happening, but we will do that. And that's all from me. Okay, and I'll get my story ready. For all right, don't Monday. forget the fish names. Yeah. Email them through. Give or me some inspiration. Instagram or Facebook. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us at Facebook at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. On Twitter at hashtag or solved, Instagram at solved, unsolved or spooky. You can email us at podcast at solved, unsolved or spooky dot com. And if you want to support the show, go to Podfan and find solved, unsolved or spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Mm-hmm.